0: men are outnumbered here. I have this little joke that kind of cheers up the women here. (laughs) I like to tell. When God made man, he stood back and looked at him and he said, well, I can do better than that. So he made a woman.
1: (laughs) I Uh,
0: I got acquainted with alcohol when I was pretty young. It was back in the 30s, the beginning of the Depression. My Dad was quite well to do, and he started drinking, and and it was all right at first. We thought kind of what he did was kind of comical, you know, and then it changed into being fighting when he'd come home drinking, and then I got to resenting his drinking, and uh, <clears throat> there was never enough money, never enough food or clothing or anything. Didn't couldn't go to church or anything. No clothes, and then. Uh, so I quit when high school when I was 15 and went to work on a farm and to help my mom and my sisters out. And then I was married at 21 and had pretty good... Uh, Bill was born then, was married in 45, and Bill was born in 48, and then we had a good good time till he was 17, and then he was in a real bad accident. And he came out of this accident. He had a bad head injury, and, and uh, he came out of this accident with the idea that the drinking was the only thing to do. I suppose it was because it was the only people that would accept him, really, the way he was. I don't know. Maybe that's an excuse I have. But Anyway, on one of the uh, visits with this neurosurgeon after uh, a while, I the neurosurgeon told him, he said, Bill, you'll never be able to handle alcohol with the pills you have to take and the head injury you have. You can't drink it at all. So I thought this would do the trick, but it didn't. It just went through him. And so when we came home, well, we kept fighting it. And finally the doctor sent us out to the mental health and sent Bill, too, to talk to them and and we went to a few stations out there and they told us that there wasn't anything we could do about his drinking but uh, just wait till it was society and just wait till the law got him. So it went that way for about 14 years and and I would find I just kept resenting what my father did. I blamed him. I thought he inherited, and I thought they just drank for orneriness. And, and uh, I just kept resenting, and I and I really would, and we'd get in big fights. And I I learned to swear a real lot. I I don't think there was a, a swear word in the book that I didn't know. And uh, then. Along it must have been about 75 on New Year's Eve. Why he came home, I thought uh, his car was out in front. I thought he'd come home, and then somehow or other we lived by a, a stop sign, and I heard this door slam. Well, I thought Bill had got out and gotten another car. So I stayed up and listened, watched TV till after midnight. And then I told one, I said, I don't feel right. I think I'll go look in his car it was that year was gee must have been 24 below zero so i went out and sure enough there was he was in his car passed out so i got him in the house and we was always tickled when he was home even if he was passed out or something if he just was home and so uh then that put me on this wild idea of I had to always go find his car and see if he's okay. So I ran around after him hunting his car for about three, four years. And then finally he was picked up for drunken driving. And he, Well, they, we needed some parts. I worked at Morrill and we needed some parts. So he worked at Gearing. So the shopman said, Do you suppose if uh, we called down to Herberts and ordered our parts if Bill would stop there and pick them up. Well, I thought, oh boy, that's a sure thing. He'll be right home today because he's got them parts. But he didn't come home. He went and parked downtown and went ahead and drank. But his picked up, and I thought I ought to go and get my parts out of there, but I didn't. But they picked him up and took his car and impounded it in parts and all. And I was pretty worried and and so, anyway, he called that night about 1, and he said, Well, you know, Dad, I got picked up for DWI. And he said, I need... I said, Well, that's tough. I said, You just have to see what they do. I said, I'm not going to do anything about it. And so the man, the jailer, somebody got on and said, Well, you'll have to come get him at 7. He'll take $50 cash. Well, we never kept $50 cash around, so... I said, well, we'll come get him when we're ready. And so I went to bed, and I, I felt pretty relieved then because I knew at least he was off the road with his car. And so the next morning we waited till we could get a check cashed and went over after him. It was after about 10 o'clock, and he came out mad then. He said, well, all the Indians are gone by now even.
1: He said, I was
0: the last one out of there. I said, well, that's too bad. And so So then... He got put on probation, and it was good. It was a pretty good life, and he really went by the book to get off probation. He was on for two years, but he got off for one. But anyway, at the beginning of this, why, some attorney told him that, well, you can still drink because uh, you wasn't picked up for drinking. You was picked up for drunken driving. So he had the idea, well, then... I'll go uptown and I'll drink and then you and Mom can come after me. So he went uptown and, and so we went after him and he was really loaded. So in, And then before this happened, I, I made a bargain with him. He's always staying out all night and spending his whole check. I said, Bill, you've got something wrong with you. With you. I said, either you go out to mental health and find out what's the matter, or else you can move out of here. So he decided he'd go out, but he'd leave them out there. Well, they gave him a young punk that didn't know nothing anyway out there, so <laughs> he, he'd go ahead and and leave there and go drink. But anyway, when they investigated his case, why, they found out that he'd been out there, and the people out there told him that he was a problem drinker and told, him, told the judge of his injury, so... They, when he went back again they told him then he said you're not only dry, not driving when you're drunk uh, drinking but you're not drinking at all with this medicine that you're taking they found out what he had to take for his seizures so uh, then that really so then that stopped him drinking for a year and he got a permit to go back and forth to work so then uh, then after he got off probation everything went fine and his mother had him going after groceries Friday night to kind of, you know, manipulate this thing around so he'd be home. And so, so then uh, he he just kind of he went to the elks and then he'd call up. Well, I'll be home in a little bit and get groceries. Fine, he was home. Then it kept getting a little later and, and a little later, and then finally he stayed out all night. And that went on for a while, and then the next time he's he was supposed to he belongs to a civil war club and the next day was supposed to uh, uh, march in the camp clark day parade so he got in about about five i guess and he's supposed to leave at eight or something so one of the fellas called and i said i don't think he can make it off i'll let you talk to him so he talked to him so bill got up but anyway he told his mother he said uh, when I get back, he said, I want to talk to you because he said, I think I'm going to go to treatment. And we didn't believe him because we thought he'd said that before. So uh, anyway, when he got back, he did tell her, he said, I'm going to call Mr. Silverman. He was, uh, Mr. Silverman, Silverman was his ex-probation officer. So he called him up and, uh Monday morning. And, and so Wednesday, then he went to treatment. So that's when that was just about, let's see, his last day he drank was the 15th of May of last year. And and if you would have told me then that I'd be standing up here today, I'd have <laughs> said, I would said, I can't believe this thing. But uh, anyway, he went to treatment, and, and when he got back, why, well, when he went, why, before then, why I was acquainted with Al Anon because. A lady that I work with uh, I didn't know she was having this problem but she was our insurance lady at work and she was pretty much instrumental in getting Bill there too because she took care of his insurance and encouraged him about going but uh, I was sitting in the office one day and after I'd asked her about the insurance and she come in she said you know Dick I have the same problems you do and told me about her husband and so then uh, she told us to go to al and then, well, I couldn't go to al then because Wanda had to go down to Epley, where Bill was at. So we we went a week from then to al and then we met Mead and the rest of these good ladies. And and uh, from then on, my life has changed. At first, when he got back, and he'd say something kind of cranky where I thought I'd have to cuss at him and take defend myself, but I'm all over that. and. I was telling my missus this morning, this is the first time we all got ready, that I wasn't cussing and hollering because he used all the hot water. So uh, that, that's all I got to say right now. Um,
2: the next lady I'm going to introduce is Marlene Inn, the
3: only person I know that could drive two cars at once. Marlene. <laughs> I'm Marlene and I'm an Al-Anon. Hi, Marlene. I'm always really delighted when I hear of others who've had troubles with cars. I like the skit this morning that said that there was car problems and Dick has had car problems. <laughs> While it is true, as Lorraine said, that I claim the distinction of being the only Al-Anon in our group being, who's mastered the art of driving two cars at the same time, I've never been adre- arrested for drunk driving. I've never been arrested for negligent driving, for public intoxication. I've never spent the night in jail. I've never lost my driver's license, and I've never had my insurance canceled, and I've never hit a freight train. Nor was I as colorful as my husband. He did all of those (laughs) things. Lest you think I'm taking his inventory, let me tell you that those attributes aren't his inventory. They're a matter of public record. And they're just a few of the incidents that led me to believe that I had to take matters and our car into my own hands. (laughs) As Alanuns, I'm sure that I don't have to justify my actions to any of you, but I somehow feel that I want to anyway. (laughs) I met Stoney in 1960, and I was a junior in high school then. I was a good student, and I was dating, and I loved Elvis Presley and the Everly Brothers and mohair sweaters, and had a brush up, and it was really cool. And in that summer, I worked all the time during high school, worked really hard, and then I met Stoney, and my life began to change pretty radically right away. He had no car then, by the way, so things were a little bit quieter. We used to bum rides with friends all the time, and then... Um, Sometime during our courtships, courtship, Stony did save enough money to buy a car. And it was kind of in desperation because if we didn't have a, a buddy to drive with, why, we'd take Stoney's dad's old car, which was just a whore. It was really awful. I don't know what it was missing, but as we drove down the street, the seats would go like this. And when he stopped, it was really bad. We were really, and it never would start. So, as teenagers we did all the things teenagers did and when we parked we had to park on a hill because that was the only way we could get started <laughs> <laughs> The way we'd go so anyway we finally did get a car and um, it didn't last too long that car didn't one night he was to pick me up at the drive-in theater I was a concession girl at the drive-in theater and Stoney didn't show up and so one of the fellas took me home, and later on that evening a couple of friends came by and said there had been a terrible accident and Stoney was in the hospital. Would you come? And of course I had to run and to the hospital, and somewhat disillusioned when I got there. He was really drunk, and uh, this, and he was all right, as a matter of fact. But the story went something like this. He had been, um, he had been at, a, at a dance and, and had gotten, gotten really drunk, but when it was time to come and pick me up from work, he started to come into town. And we lived in Kearney, and at the college there were a bunch of curves and some islands. And he lost control of the car at the time. It was raining. And he took out a great big, huge light pole and a great big, huge cement thing that the light pole sat in. And there were all kinds of college kids around there at the time, and he was just drunk as all get out. And they came, and they just stuffed his mouth full of gum. And so when he got up to the hospital, (laughs) the doctor that was uh, examining him went over to him and opened his mouth and took the the gum and took it out, (laughs) looked at him and put the gum back in. (laughs) That was about the extent of his injuries. Uh, Within a few short months, I was faced with the choice of either buying maternity clothes in my school colors or quitting school and getting married, and I opted for the latter. And Stoney and I were married, and we started out our marriage... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Much like other people do with an installment payment. The city of Kearney uh, were gracious enough to let us pay for a lovely light pole. It had a nice globe and big cement base, and seemed like we paid installment payments on that thing for 500 years. And uh, we were back in Kearney a week or so ago, and we happened to drive by there, and I said, Tony, would you look at that? They're just not maintaining our pole like they should <laughs> It's all rusty and dented. It looks like a few other drunks have taken a few pot shots at our (laughs) cola, at any rate, that was our first car, and somewhere along the line, we had a few others. And six years later, and several cars later, alcohol had become a real problem in our lives. Despite that, Stoney was a senior in college at the time, and I had worked all that time to help him through college, and we had our second child. Uh, When our daughter was born, I had very serious complications and went back to the hospital. And I came home that year on Mother's Day Eve, right about this time of the year. And uh, Stoney elected to celebrate that evening much the same way that he had other times, and he went out, and he stayed out. And late, late, late that night, or possibly early the next morning, I heard the sirens that we've all come to know and love. And the telephone rang shortly thereafter, and it was a policeman who happened to be a friend of our family. And he told me the most incredible story. Uh... It seems that he and his partner were sitting across the street uh, from the railroad tracks and they watched Stoney pull up to the railroad tracks and there was a freight train speeding by. And they watched him nod off or pass out, whichever, and the car rolled into the freight train that was going by. And it completely severed the front of our car. And when they went to investigate the accident, he told me they did not expect to find Stoney there or alive or in pieces. And I'll be damned if he didn't walk out and say. (laughs) He told him, there's nothing wrong with this car. I'm going to bend the fender out, and I'll drive this baby home. (laughs) Well, that wasn't necessary. The police offered him a ride, and they even gave him a room. (laughs) So the next day, I uh, went down, and I spent my, um, I had uh, quit my job, and I had, um, oh, what do you call it, a profit sharing. And I got him out of jail. And it wasn't a free room that he had, by any means, nor was the fine little. And I spent the rest of it buying another car. And uh, the only consolation I think I had was that Stoney had lost his driver's license and couldn't drive it. For six whole months, I had a car. So his drinking escapades uh, ballooned to such proportions that my horror of what he would do to himself or to someone else while he was driving uh, just grew to near hysteria. Um, Ironically, at that time, I was more concerned about his driving than than I was about his drinking, and that's the truth. I really, really was. There were lots and lots of incidents. There was a time he was sitting in the bar, and he heard a freight train whistle. He has something about trains, I don't know. Um, And he bet his buddies around the bar, I bet I can beat that train to the crossing. And they they all took his bet, and he ran out, jumped in the car, and he cleared the tracks, and and the train ticked the back bumper of the car as he went by. But he didn 't hit it that, or it didn 't hit him that time, or there was a time when he was working on construction and he had these big burly masculine construction guys, and he drove them to their job on the interstate one morning, and when they got back that night, they refused to ride with him ever again, <laughs> cowards though they were uh, oh, let 's see oh I did, there was another time one very foggy morning, Stoney had been out all night long, and I had no idea where he was, and I looked out and a State car pulled up and happened to be a guy driving that I used to date. I thought, oh, Lord, what happened this time? And Stoney jumped out and just in time to put on his suit of clothes. He was examining banks at the time and meet the crew and go on to work. And on his way out the door, he said, oh, by the way, the car is out on the interstate, but I don't know if it's east or west of town. Would you pick it up? So (laughs) casually as I could, I called the state patrol and said, you know, do you have any reports of an abandoned car on the interstate? And sure enough, they did. Well, I had never really shared my problems with anybody, and I didn't know how I was going to get out there to pick up that car without really revealing myself. But I did call a friend and say, You know, if Sony had some car troubles last night and had to leave his car, would you go? Would you take me out and I'll get the car? Um, same, this seemed strange to her that I didn't exactly know where it was. But, um,. When we got there, the car was kind of like this. He had hit something, and the undercarriage was going this way, and the car was going this way, and you couldn't drive down the road. So we had to have it. That was one more car gone. <laughs> At any rate, uh, about this time, I decided that enough was enough, that something had to be done with Stony and his drinking and his driving. And uh, I began to study the problem. But when we would come up in the world, we had two cars by that time. And so when he was out drinking, at least I wasn't I didn't feel as confined as I used to feel when we didn't have that second car. And I could run around town, I could find his car, but I was so darn frustrated there was just nothing I could do about it. And I had these three little kids with me. There was no way. I could I just and then the light dawned. And it just seemed to me, why didn't I ever think of this before? And it amazes me the other Al have not thought about it. I took the car and I would find Stoney's car. And I would go and I said, Okay now. I drove about four blocks from the car and I'd lock all the doors and roll the windows up and say, now you kids just sit right there and be really quiet, mommy will be right back. Then I would run up and get Stoney's car and I would drive it about four blocks ahead of our car and then I would run back and get our car and drive it about four blocks ahead of the other car. And in that little hopscotch way, I managed to get all the way home, <laughs> driving two cars, and, and when we rewarded ourselves with an ice cream cone or something when it was all over with. But that wasn't quite the end of the story. I tell you, I was so pleased and so delighted with myself. I, still, I waited up all night for Stoney to come home. I could hardly wait to find out how he'd get home. Well, he did come home, and I don't know how. And he would uh, kind of creep into the house. He'd creep in. He walked around to the, to the garage door and peeked in to see if there was a car, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. He was looking for the car. But I think I must have, I must have slipped a little after that. A cog wasn't working quite right or something. I began to fear that he would realize that I had the car and that he'd come home and get it. So I decided the next time I did that I was really going to get him. So I was going to hide the car. And the one place I knew to hide that car that he damned well would never look was in the church parking lot. (laughs) So help me, I did. I put the car over there, and he didn't find it. But the minister called me the next morning and said, Mrs. Nelson, did you know your car is in our park?" And I said, no. (laughs) Had no idea what my car was doing there, but I certainly would come and get it right away. So... At any rate, in November of 1975, Stony went to Alcohol Treatment Center in Hazelden, and I found it completely unnecessary since that time to drive two cars at the same time or to hide it from him. I uh, feel very grateful. Our life hasn't all been funny, and and the drinking episodes were not always pleasurable, (laughs) obviously. We had our share of heartaches and grief and disillusionment, and I think a lot of times it helps me to look back and to be able to laugh. Uh, You know, some of the things we did were pretty laughable and we're pretty stupid. I'm very grateful to be in Al-Anon. I feel like I've come a long way, and I'm so happy to be able to share with you today. Thank you. Faithful Al-Anon, Joanne M., who
2: held Al-Anon meetings in parked cars.
1: Joanne?
2: I'm Joanne M., and I'm an (laughs) Al-Anon. I attend the Torrington Al-Anon group, and there's one thing that our group has. We really have determination. We've had so much trouble in the past finding a place to meet. We would just find a place, and then it wouldn't be open to us Every uh, particular night that we planned to have our meetings. So we would often meet at our meeting place and find something else going on. And often we would go to each other's homes. And this didn't work out too well. And a few times we would go to the Torrington Park. But sometimes the mosquitoes were so bad and the light was so poor we couldn't conduct the meeting as we wished. So a few times we even met in cars. we just park in the car and leave the light on and conduct our meeting. And several times a police car would drive past very slowly <laughs> and inspect this women full of cars. And we got to laughing and wondering what kind of reputation we were building with a carload of women sitting there holding hands. saying <laughs> <up there. laughs> But at this point we do have a a meeting place of our own and we're grateful for it too I have to share one thing with you it's very difficult for me to get up and speak but the most difficult time I ever found in getting up was one time when I was in Cheyenne they didn't have call up speakers they had drag up speakers <laughs> and one lady had a, a sign across her it said al finder And to fill in the spots of the program, she'd go around through the crowd, and she would literally take someone by the hand and drag them up. Well, this particular day, I had on a pair of new pantyhose and a new slick girdle, and my pantyhose were over the top of my girdle. And some of you might know what kind of a problem I had. I didn't realize this until she grabbed my hands. And she was pulling me up front, and I felt my pantyhose just as low as they could go with a pair of <laughs> pants on. And I just about died. I don't know how I got through that, through that uh, little talk that I gave, but I thought, if I can get through that, I can get through anything.
1: <laughs> I grew up
2: in a home where alcohol really played a large influence My father drank too much, and my mother was a very unhappy person. I couldn't understand how this woman could care so much for this man that treated her so indifferently. I felt she had my love, and she had my devotion, but I could see that this really wasn't enough. I grew up with a lot of anger and a lot of fears and a lot of resentments. And I still had a lot of these fears, resentments, when I became an adult. I had heard of my husband's reputation as being a boozer, a party boy, before I met him. But when I met him, I married him anyway. And I realized, although I was afraid of alcohol, I began to find a great fascination for what alcohol would do for you. I saw how it relaxed people how it took away shyness, and I was a very shy person. During the first few years of our marriage, drinking really wasn't a problem. It was really more fun. But six years and four children later, alcohol had begun to be my enemy. I could see that my husband's drinking pattern was different from our friends. His whole object was drinking. He drank sooner, faster, and more than most of our friends. And he would often pass out. And everybody joked and laughed about this, and I would too. But inside, I felt fear. He began taking off drinking with his friends, and my anger and fear grew. He began drinking alone, and my anger and fear grew. When I found out that he was hiding his liquor supply, this just about blew my mind. And we slipped into the isolation that often goes along with living in an alcoholic family. I began to feel the indifference from my alcoholic husband that I'm sure my mother felt with hers. His behavior was out of control and my behavior was out of control and often the children's behavior was out of control. We had no harmony in our home. Everybody was pulling apart. When I came to Al-Anon, you welcomed me. You seemed to understand without me saying a word. And some of you even seemed to like me. The part about step one that really hit me was we were powerless over alcohol. And this was such a revelation to me to find out that it wasn't my duty to control my husband's drinking. And it was such a relief to know that. Step two, belief in a power greater than ourselves. And I had lost all hope in God a long time ago. But I kept thinking back to the God of my childhood when I occasionally said prayers and I remembered the security I felt. In communication with him and beside I could see the fruits of this step through the group that I was attending step 3 turn our will and our lives over to the care of God that was a toughie and it still is sometimes I'd been in the driver's seat for so long but I had to admit I'd been driving with a dirty windshield I didn't have any steering wheel or any brakes. I just ran the accelerator and drove aimlessly along. And when we put God in the driver's seat, he drives with a clean windshield. He not only has a steering wheel, he has power steering and power brakes, and he carries a map with him. Occasionally, I try to backseat drive or scoot over into the driver's seat, and sometimes God very gently rebuffs me and sometimes he very ungently rebuffs me and allows me to feel pain but that's okay because i know that he'll be there as long as i want and as long as i allow him to be today i can say i have no resentment towards my parents they lived their lives the only way that they knew and my mother didn't have an an al-anon group to share with She only had a little child that didn't understand. My husband has been sober in AA for several years, and he tells me that he wouldn't have tried to find sobriety at the time he did had I not begun to get better in Al-Anon. But at last, I found something that I was looking for all my life, and that is love and acceptance. I know that God loves and accepts me, that you love and accept me, and I can do no less. I love and accept myself. Thank you. Edie, we have one more speaker. Do we have time?
1: You decide my decision.
3: What do you think, Ben? getting
1: close, to Could we have her? Yeah,
2: but we'll have her this afternoon. Thank you. going to sing a song now, uh, one day at a time, no doubt. <laughs> I have to always sing that. Vicki, one day at a time. And then we'll close. And I think back here at 2 o'clock... Um, They're passing out any of these little flyers, if nobody got them, that they have the songs in them. up in the morning, and everybody's welcome back this afternoon at 2 o'clock in this room.